Welcome to the Cryptomaniacs Podcast. Join Taskmaster 4450 and John G. Olson each and every week as they dive into the crazy world of cryptocurrency. If you are new to crypto or you've been through a few bear markets in the past, this podcast is for you. It's time to start the show. Ladies and gentlemen, children of all ages, welcome to another Cryptomaniacs podcast. And uh, we're streaming everywhere. Like I said, just before we went live task, we're even on YouTube now. So, you know, we're just, we're everywhere, man. We're, we're like, we're like a really, really, really annoying cousin. We're just everywhere. Task, how was your weekend, man? That's, that's, that's what everyone wants to know. My, my weekend was, uh, very eventful. I uh, made some videos. I uh, wrote some articles. I uh, did some commenting and some upvoting on Hive. So I, I basically did nothing different. Hey, by the way, uh, gentlemen, today is Tuesday and happy two day to you. It's 2-22-2022. So yes. we got a lot of twos going. Yes. And we are welcoming back uh, this has been one that was marked down on the calendar for a bit, and I know a lot of people were excited for this. We're welcoming back. Block Trades, uh, the man, the myth, the legend is back again with us. So we got a uh, – last week, Arcane set up that Hive Buzz badge for me, and I've got to set it out because Block Trades, this is, I think, your third time, man. Welcome yeah. back. Oh, it's been three now? Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's on the leaderboard. Yeah, he is. That's what I mean. We got to get those badges out to everybody, right? I mean, you know. Hey, you're the technical guru. I so I, get a, who... I get a Cryptomaniacs badge now? Yeah. Huh? yeah. Our, Arcane yeah. designed a Cryptomaniacs badge for guests on Cryptomaniacs. Very cool. And John is fully in charge of them. So if you don't get it, throw the virtual tomatoes <laughs> at John and not me. He, he kind of, he, he sent he sent me a list of how to do it, right? And, and like, it, it's not like it's it's easy, but I mean, sometimes I don't. People don't understand how lack of technical abilities I have. Um, anything that requires more than me, like typing "hello" in a keyboard, is just it's a write off. So it's going to take some time, but we'll get the badges out to all the guests. But uh, and yeah, so Block Trades is back, uh, appearance number three. So uh, lots of stuff to talk about. Uh, as always, I'm looking forward to this one, and I know Task is too. So. Uh, Let's get into it, shall we, Task? Yeah, I figure uh, we would be remiss and we'd probably get uh, stoned or have people like say bad things about us if we didn't bring up this topic because it is on everybody's mind. It is hard fork season. Uh, I might be mistaken, but last I read, it was the target was end of March. Uh, is that still your target date? And I know everybody's talking about the resource credit delegations, but what are some of the features that are going to be in this hard fork that you want to highlight? Um, so I guess addressing the date first, I think it's unlikely at this point we'll be able to release into March. That was always an aggressive schedule, and I hope to free up some resources to work on sort of the remaining things and that work was supposed to have started about a week ago and it didn't. So 
at this point, my guess we're probably talking middle middle April, I think, is, is most likely somewhere in April. So two to three week delay off your aggressive yeah. planes. Okay. Yeah, I think so. Mainly because I want to be sure we have a lot of testing time. And last discussion I had with the the Polish team on, on their work is yeah, they want to have a lot of time for testing everything. So um as far as things to highlight, um in some way the biggest thing is not really it's not really a hard fork feature, but we're going to release it with the hard fork. And that is, um, hold on just a second. What's going on in there? Okay, it sounds like a UPS. Maybe you could help him out. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Have a beeping noise in the background here, which you guys probably don't hear, but just want to be sure everything was okay there. Uh, <laughs> the fun of UPSs and their little beeps. Um, okay, so half is really probably the biggest thing i think to highlight even though like i said it's not a hard fork feature per se it's going to come out around the same time as the hard fork because it basically in order to run half people are going to want to upgrade their hive clients hive d clients so it just makes sense i think to to do it during hard fork time because everybody's got to upgrade for all our all our witnesses and api nodes have got to upgrade for the hard fork anyway so just do it all at once so that's why, that's why, I mean, you could test half now and people could mess around with it now, but there wouldn't be like any public half servers yet. Yeah, well, and that, that actually leads into, uh, because I know this is a project that's near and dear to you since uh, you are the one who, who, who devised it and, and even created the name. Um, to delve into a little bit of half, would it, would it be accurate for me to say that half is basically a database manager or is that incorrect um it could be viewed that way i mean it could be viewed a lot of different ways i view it as just a programming framework which means it's a it's an environment for somebody to write hive code in that kind of it's kind of like a way to write your hive app uh in a way that you can guarantee that it's going to be uh error free uh, it works with the database right so that's mm -hmm. it, it is it is it does involve database coding that's for sure um, but what it does is it, it gets the data from the blockchain, puts it into the database. It manages the way blockchain data gets into the database and possibly gets removed from the database. Cause like in a blockchain, you can have forks where blocks get removed because they, they didn't get approved by enough witnesses, for instance. So not, if not enough witnesses see a block, that block just disappears. And so in half, we'll see that block originally, maybe a half server might see the block. The applications will then process that block. But then if that block if that block doesn't get approved by enough witnesses and it goes away, then all those apps have to basically forget about that block and everything that they did as a result of that block being received. So that's what we call the high fork manager. And that's one of the biggest, the most important technically components of, of half is that ability to handle blocks going away and being changed. Because otherwise you, your app winds up in a state where it thinks things happen that the blockchain says didn't happen. Is that a common occurrence across, across the blockchain world? Uh, I mean, we, I've it depends a little bit. So forks definitely happen and they can be rare. There's, there's, let me, I, I guess I should also differentiate. There's sort of two different kinds of forks. So there's one kind of fork, which is when people intentionally create a fork. Mm -hmm. And that's when like you have Bitcoin and then somebody says, well, I want my code to run differently. So they make Bitcoin cash, which just literally operates differently. So that's an intentional fork. Mm -hmm. But a more common type of fork is a non-intentional fork, which is like 
you have a network connectivity problem. So somebody produces a block, the other nodes, you get that, that block and they build on top of that block. But if enough nodes don't receive that new block, then a few nodes might build off that block. The other ones build off another block. And that's a fork too. And so there's code in most, most blockchains to then deal with the fact that they've got nodes that are in disagreement. And they come back to agreement through fork, something called fork resolution. And mm -hmm. usually it's something like the longest chain wins idea, which wh whichever blockchain has the longest. They, they see that they, the nodes communicate with each other and say, oh, you've got a longer chain than I do. I need to switch to your chain, for instance. So yeah, forks happen and the, how often they happen can depend on a lot of things. One of the things that depends on is how fast you produce your blocks. So uh, if you produce your blocks very slowly, then there's plenty of time for, for nodes to figure out that they've, to get, to, for a new block to get passed around to all the nodes. But if your blockchain is very fast, like Kaiba is, there's more chance for a block to somebody to go off on a fork temporarily. The most common case is like somebody produces a block too late and it arrives on time to some of the other nodes, but not enough of them to be counted as a proper block. And in the meantime, everybody else has accepted some other block. So we call it, that's one, we call that a micro fork. It's a real mm -hmm. it's a quick blip and it might only be a block or two long. So it, it, but if your application is actually processing right at the head block, then yeah, you can have to deal with those kind of problems. And uh, from the blockchain perspective, it sounds like this is resolved in, you know, six, nine, 12 seconds. It, it's resolved very quickly, correct? It can be. Um, it, it's not always. Um, if you had like a real connectivity problem, like say your internet split, say, say the cables got cut between Europe and America, for instance, and then you could have a, you could have a fork that lasts for a while, right? Because the nodes can't connect up. Oh, okay. I see what you're saying. So... So in, if there's a, it just, it's, it depends on the nature of the interruption. If it's just a, just a slow, slow versus actual loss of connection between nodes, as far as how long a fork lasts. But yeah, typically micro forks are very quick and they get resolved very quickly within a matter of seconds. Now you, you mentioned something interesting, speed. Uh, is this uh, reg regardless of how uh, the format is? So proof of work versus proof of stake. It really doesn't matter. It's it's more the speed, or is this yeah. more a proof of stake as opposed as opposed to proof of work situation? It, it's really mostly about the speed. Um, okay. If 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 you've got speed requirements, it, I mean, it, it does depend a little bit on how your blockchain set up, but you know what the rules are for accepting a new block do matter. But like, uh, for instance, if you if you've got one where you've scheduled the scheduled the witnesses ahead of time, and you know what block they're going to which block they're supposed to generate in the next round, which is what Hive and most DPoS systems do, then there's kind of a little more clarity on who's supposed to be producing the next blocks. Mm -hmm. If you're dealing with something like Bitcoin, it's like any of the nodes, any of the miners can potentially be, they're all competing to generate the next block and it's just a race. So I suppose actually you could probably argue that if those were running really fast, they would have more likely to have forking problems because there would be more, if, if they could run fast and generate blocks very quick, Every, one guy might see a block. They says, oh yeah, that's the first block. But then another guy at a different place would say, oh no, that's the first block. So forks would actually happen very commonly in a proof of work if your proof of work was very quick to calculate and you could publish it right away. So the fact that it takes a long time to calculate is important for a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin to actually not have major forking problems. 
Is and, and I, I'm going off a little into the never never land here, but this is interesting. Uh, is proof of work? Does that have the capability to be fast, or is it is it intentionally slowed down? Because I, I think mean, it's intentionally see- slowed down. I think that's. I think okay. I mean, when I sit there and think about it, if if I could do if I could do a, solve a perf- proof of work problem, say a hundred milliseconds, a tenth a tenth of a second. And it takes a sec, say it takes a second for my block to transmit across the ocean to blockchain nodes over there. Then you'd have this problem where a lot of different nodes would, would be producing blocks in that, you know, 100, 150 millisecond range. So you might, they might be arriving at each one of those would be arriving at different times at different nodes. And you'd constantly have forks. They would just, they were, so your, 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 your time of your block has to be a lot longer than the time of transmission to be safe. And so what, I would presume then is there is a some type of ceiling on exactly how fast a proof of work system can go uh, because if, there's if point consi- where yeah if it was consi- if if it was cheap to consistently I mean it's not like in Bitcoin right now somebody could theoretically find the next block you know in in ten milliseconds and and publish it and that would work okay. As long as they were the only one doing that, but if a bunch of if a bunch of nodes were, were generating blocks in that range, then it would get to real confusion as to which block was the real winner. Understood. Okay, and and bringing back to half now. So, what half does, if I'm understanding correctly, is any application developer is able to tie into half, but. I guess half is going to eliminate the problem of the micro forking from the application development standpoint. It'll still happen and it, it's still part of the, the blockchain ecosystem, but half kind of sits in the middle there and says, okay, you, you app developers, you don't need to worry about this because what half puts forth is going to be the updated and, and the, 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 post fork stuff if am i understanding that correctly yeah yeah so let me let me go a little detail about how it actually works but that's that's essentially correct it, it hides the forking sort of so the way it works is a block comes out your application produces processes that block it might create data based off that block so it's recorded off from information about who you know that somebody voted for something for instance and it says okay now i've got a record that says this guy voted for this and maybe it's keeping track of how many votes for that particular post then that block gets blown away and it now needs to uncount that vote that it counted earlier. In a normal situation, it would have to say, oh, you would have to send a message that this block has gone away. Then this app would have to rescan the block and reverse everything it did based off that block in its mm-hmm. code. So it had to write like I call it undo code that would undo every operation in that block. But that's a pain in the neck because that if you have to write an undo for every operate every processing transaction, everything you do when you process a block, then it's, it's just more work. So basically what, what half does is it knows what the state of, of, your, of your, your database was before you process that block. Then you update to the state that is after the block. But if, if it sees the block goes away, it can automatically revert the state of your database back to the state it was at before the block. So it, it takes care of, you don't have to write any undo code. It undoes your changes to the database, your applications changes to the database automatically. And you tell it what you want it to undo. You, you basically say, I'm all these tables, if any change happens, if, if I lose some number of blocks, un- revert all the changes associated with those blocks in my tables. 
and the tables are basically your app's data. Gotcha. So, so the benefit to this, it sounds like, is a it's a lot less headaches for uh, app developers, if for no other reason than they don't have to write that undo code. So it it makes that process a lot more efficient. But I, I would imagine that there's a lot of developers, especially those who are, how should I say, novel to the blockchain world, who might not even be aware no, of that. Or might yes, uh, I'm very sure a lot of them don't even realize they need to write that kind of code. <laughs> so, okay, yeah. so so they don't even write it, right? <laughs> it doesn't. Get so so basically, if if we, we're connecting the dots, what what half will do is this will open up the program programming of applications to a much wider pool of developers than presently are right now. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. That's definitely correct. And the programming model is, is more favorable for larger number of programmers too. So the basic programming model is SQL database programming, which is one of the most common forms of programming out there really. And um, it doesn't require you to learn like a specialized language. Like if you want to go program in Ethereum, for instance, you want to write a smart contract in Ethereum, you basically got to learn a specialized language that they created just for Ethereum. And mm -hmm. that that puts a big restriction on how many you know how many programmers can just start up and write write code for it. Well, and, and what and what you mentioned that I recall from the last time you were on, what what happens there is uh, you have people who are learning the code. Uh, they are fairly adept at creating the code, but they don't have a great in depth knowledge of the code. So. They have not only bugs, but they have security flaws just out of ignorance. They didn't Absolutely. know. And so all of a sudden you have these smart contracts out there with security flaws that can be exploited. Yeah, that's exactly correct. And so half will allow people to operate in programming languages that they've been using for years and years and years. So what they design, uh, if they have any expertise in that programming language, should be fairly secure. Yes, they'll have a they have a lot more background in what they're doing, so they they're more aware of what what are the good practices and bad practices when it comes to writing the code. And, and the the final piece that I have with half is, well, actually, I got two more uh, points to this. But one is, this also it, it allows applications to tap into half, but it keeps still everything else off the blockchain, right? So. The blockchain is still kept tight and neat and 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 condensed as compared to the half, which can just can expand and grow. And as more developers create more stuff and, and open source it and share it, that'll grow and that menu or library will grow. But the blockchain is still okay. We have these very specific functions at the blockchain level, and not nothing messes with that. Yep, that's that's correct. Okay, now from a, a uh, I don't know what you call it, a technical standpoint, where is half resident? Is this going to have its own servers or is this uh, integrated right into the API servers? I, it'll, well, it'll be definitely integrated into the API servers. Um, for one thing, we're, we're taking several of the functionalities that the API servers had and replace them with half components. So uh, one, of the, one of the things an API server does is what we call account history. And that means you can ask an API server all the transactions and activities done by a particular account, right? So you can say, how many trans what are the transfer history of this account over the past week? And there's a specific API call that does that. 
And right now that API call goes to the, the Hive D node itself, the, 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 the blockchain node. But that, that, that call, those calls put a lot of uh, load on the Hive D node servers and potentially they could, you could even like overwhelm one with enough traffic, right? So you have, right now there's rate limits and things set on API nodes to prevent them from being overwhelmed by that kind of traffic. So it's one of the more expensive calls. These are some of the more expensive calls that get made. So basically we're offloading all that into a half application. That's what we call HAFA. Uh, don't ask why that name ever got created. <laughs> I blame someone else for that one. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyways, uh, it essentially stands for half account history node. And it's a replacement for running a whole Hive D node that keeps track of account history. And the advantage of a half a uh, server, half a running on a half server is that it's much quicker and it can handle a much greater load of activity without really placing a lot of CPU strain on the, on the server. So that's, that's really our first completed major half application is half a, the other one, we're, the other big one we're working on is HiveMind. So we're changing HiveMind into a half, half application as well. And so between those two, that's two of the major API server, API components on a, an API node. So you, it would be easy to say at that point that most of the API, a, a large portion of the API calls will actually be half, will be calling half, will be running on a half server. And that's great because it takes off the load off, off your, off your Hive D node. Uh, so those nodes, you know, which are kind of the critical ones, those are the, the ones that are running the blockchain itself those don't get too loaded down. And it sounds like this is leading me into to my next topic. And uh, it was something that you and I kind of joked about it. I believe it was in the comment section of one of your posts. Maybe it was one of my posts. But um, about what you do, your waking hours, and what you think about. And we had Archange on here last week. And this guy lives, breathes, and bleeds security. And you... Uh, you, you seem to breathe scaling and it sounds like uh, half is going to enable for greater scaling and, and optimization, at least in that area of, of the ecosystem. Is that correct? Yeah, that's absolutely what, what half is really aimed at is, is basically scaling blockchain technology itself because blockchain technology right now is in, in current forms has been quite limited until how much it can handle. So really what we're doing is looking how to make blockchain scale to, you know, be able to compete essentially with, with centralized services. And, and that kind of brings into, since the last time you were here, I don't know, it's been six, maybe seven months. And I know uh, you, you had mentioned that a lot of the first year after the Hive uh, major fork, uh, you spent on optimi optimization and, and scaling and making the blockchain a lot more efficient, uh, not only from an operations perspective, but also a, a cost perspective, which is obviously very important. And the last uh, six months, just reading your, your weekly or, or every other week post, you, you talk about half and some of the other things. It, do you have anybody just dedicated to optimization and scaling, or is this just something you go about your business on a, a regular basis, but it, it's always at the forefront of your mind. So every opportunity to, to tighten up some code or to get some steps out of the way, uh, you, you're always looking to take advantage of that. It's a little bit of both. I mean, we knew coming in, we knew about problems and 
I mean, scaling problems and performance issues when we first started. Uh, and also, you know, as we got into it, we could see other places that needed work improvements and things like that. And so they got scheduled in that we'll, you know, we'll get to them when we get to them. And that's kind of, so, I mean, we've known about a lot of these issues for a long time and some of it's through some of it, right. Like I said, right away, some of the observation and yeah, we still of course look for, look for uh, ways to improve, you know, look for pro potential problems that we're not aware of. Yeah. That's, that's kind of an always ongoing thing. And I mean, we, we find them in a lot of different ways. I mean, sometimes we find it by watching performance of our API node and just seeing, you know, when it gets loaded down and why and how and things like that. But other times it's, we've, we look at the code and we're like, oh, wait, that could be done better. So it's, it's a combination of a lot of different things as far as how you find out something can be improved uh, performance wise. Yeah. And I know that there's a lot of code that when, you know, after the fork, it quite frankly hadn't been looked at years and years and years. So you guys were, were tasked with having to go through that and, you kind of like you said yeah, we you still learn things <laughs> even, even now we still learn things about the code <laughs> <laughs> look look at the date of the update 2014 oh okay well maybe we ought to address this a little bit um because scaling is is something and and to the lay person i i don't know we 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 think of scaling as, okay, well, it, it's a Ferrari or it's a, a rocket ship. And I mean, it's just make everything go faster, faster, faster. But from, from your end of things, I'm sure you see it in, in a different manner uh, and optimization and, and things like that. And, you know, we basically look at it from, from the non-technical end of things is just how much can we take place? And and basically everybody talks, well, your your transactions per second and, you know, Ethereum or Bitcoin does eight and Ethereum does 20 or whatever. And of course, then you got Visa out there doing 20,000 a second or whatever. And that's the extent that we look at. And, and obviously just from, you know, the start of this show, you explained how there's just so many different components. But I, I guess my question is, and, you know, I don't know how you're going to answer this other than just maybe general or or if there's a couple metrics you want to pull out where do you think our scaling capability is now in terms of what we could throw at this blockchain as it stands now and then try to maybe contrast that or give us an idea when half fully does go live and is in operation you know will there be a marked increase there and i don't know if you talk transactions per second or number of uh, whatever metrics you want to use. Is there some way you could maybe frame that for us? Um, yeah. So I guess, interestingly, it, it's definitely not transactions per second in this case for half. Um, so you could look at two forms. Let's talk about two forms of loading. So the form you're talking about right now is basically new transactions getting included into the database. And that's one form of loading, right? So there's definitely an upper limit on that. And, you know, we, we try to make that faster. But the other form of loading is API nodes get a loading from servers talking to those API nodes. So every 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 person who's on a web page on live.blog or ECNC or PeakD, each one of those web, web pages is talking to an API server to get mm -hmm. the data. And the more of those people, more people running that server, the more hits that server takes. So this is unrelating to the transactions processed by the blockchain. So it's like it's like the transactions to the blockchain are like writing data to the blockchain. API calls are like reading the data that's been written to the blockchain. 
So one of the things HALF is really working on is how to read the blockchain data faster and deliver it up faster to consumers like web pages, applications. So a lot of what happens, a lot of the, the strain as you scale up is actually on the reading side. You get more and more people wanting to look at the blockchain data and read it. And that's, that's really where HALF shines is, is making that part, that, that part more scalable. Oh, okay. So when, uh, and I'll use this one just to drive John nuts. Uh, when Ethereum, you see like at times people start talking about like Ethereum and, oh, their transactions are, are backed up, uh, you know, two days or whatever. Is that because they they just have so much that their writing is just taking that long to, to catch up? Is that why it's delayed? Yeah. So the writing might not be just the time it takes to write it, though. It's also time to. So when you make a transaction, then the, the blockchain node has to process that transaction, figure out what it needs to do based on that transaction. And then it puts it in the block once it approves it, that it's OK. But that processing time is can be an upper limit on how fast you can get data into your blockchain. So if you're running smart contracts and those smart contracts take a long time to run, that can delay how fast you can write data to your write data into your blockchain so it's basically the operate the processing of blockchain operations that usually sets the upper limit on how fast your blockchain can run it can also be your networking if you if your peer-to-peer -peer network isn't designed well that can also cause problems but generally speaking right now mostly it's the time to process transactions that sets the upper limit on the right speed. So if you do that efficiently, you can you can process more transactions per second. And I think that's one of the areas where Hive is already quite good. It has a very fast ability to process transactions very quickly. But so, where it, it still needed some work, I think, is the side that scales. See, that only scales so fast because only so many people need to write, create new transactions per second, right? But if you think about it, how many times do you write a transaction versus you look at a web page that has transaction data on it that happens a lot more commonly and that's that's where you really need to be able to scale well yeah and and a lot of it you know to be honest with you if 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 i if i give an upvote if that takes a few extra seconds to be written to the blockchain is it the end of the world no but if i click on a page to try to read um a comment i want the comments there i want the latest updated comment and if it's not there it's like well what yeah, happens so, or if your whole page doesn't render and you're just staring at a blank screen for a yeah, yeah we have that of course of late in the last couple months that may be just major parts of the internet down yeah yeah that that like, could definitely happen too like like facebook so okay so basically what what we're gonna have with we'll call it post half. So starting in, we'll give you a little time and let's say in May, half should be up and running. And so now we will have a lot more optimization, not only on the right side, but also on the read side, which will help the loading of APIs and, and different applications, getting the data from the website or yeah. from the blockchain, excuse me. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, 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 I say it's reading, but it's a little bit more than reading too, because there is a writing side to half. Uh, so there's the blockchain data, which is all transactions per second. But then there's like secondary data that gets created from the blockchain data. So as an example, if you had a vote counter that was counting how many times a post has been voted on, each transaction increments that vote counter. That's additional data that's getting written for every vote. 
And so there's that's like an application doing that. So that hive mind might be doing that, for instance. That's an application running on the hive blockchain. Or you so you're playing a game and uh the transaction says you attack somebody, then it's got to calculate things and write out the results of that attack to its own database. So all those, those are rights. And you do want those rights to be fast too. In other words, your application has to keep up with the speed of the blockchain. So you do want to have it kind of designed, you, your, your half application, this helps you design an application that can keep up with the blockchain as it's running at its, at its full speed. And, and so now that you've explained this and, and kind of peeled back some of the layers for us, this is why when you get more users that things tend to bottleneck and slow down is the, the blockchain will still process the way the blockchain does, but it's all these different layers and all these different types of um, applications that are tying in. And with more users and more transactions, if you don't optimize the different facets before it gets to the blockchain, you end up with bottleneck anyway. That's right. That's right. So your application might slow down so that it can't even create new transactions to put to the blockchain because it's so busy solving, answering questions from its players or trying to and, process actions from its players. And you mentioned that you're looking at half, maybe, uh, creating a little more parity between the centralized systems and blockchain, which you said, which everybody I think knows, is notorious for being much slower and, and clunky and, and not being able to operate in, in an efficient manner, much like the centralized systems. You're saying that half is going to close that gap a little bit and put us on a, a little bit more of a par than- Yeah, I think we'll be pretty, pretty close to one-to-one, -on -one, one -one, actually. Really? Because, I mean, a lot of what half does is it basically gets a lot of the same advantages that the centralized services normally have. Gotcha. So so then it just comes down to the technical specs of the servers that it's being run on and things of that nature and the processing speed and memory and just how beefy the actual hardware is then. That's right. And so let me give you one example of an advantage that a, a centralized service has. A centralized service only needs to run its application. If you run now, if you're running a smart contract platform, you've got to run all the smart contracts that get published on there, and you don't even have a choice about it. Every contract that gets published, you have to run. So you have to run. It's a lot more. You're basically running all that on a single server. So that's that's one disadvantage right now to a decentralized system of using smart contracts is that it has to run every application. So with half, you don't have to do that. You can make a half server and you can pick and choose as a half operator. You can choose what applications you want to run on your server. If you want, you can just run your application. That's it. Just like a centralized server guy can. But it's still, you're, the, the, the transactions are still taking place on the blockchain. They're still immutable. They're still provable, all those kind of things. Hmm. Gotcha. So, so it is providing a lot of flexibility to the developers as to what they want to pick and choose and, and how they want to design their own half. They can either use, I guess, the half in, you know, the different APIs, or they can uh, queue up their own server and put in what they want, correct? That's right. So we'll, we'll probably have a standard half server that has like everything that, you know, is like people will we'll make up like, We'll have it like with the basic ones, like account history and hive mind, for instance. So you'll be able to download a half server that you can configure to have run hive mind and account history. So if you just want to run a standard API node, you could grab that. 
Or you could pick and choose. You could say, okay, I just want the account history. I don't want HiveMind or vice versa. Uh, so you have more control over what, the, it's basically the API operators is who this really gives control to. It's not so much the devs as whoever's running a half server. A half, serv a half server operator can choose what applications he wants to run on it. So if he just thinks it's useful to support some game, he could, he could say, look, I'll run your game software on my server and people can ping my server for information about the game. Gotcha. So th this to me sounds like if I'm developing an application or a game or, or whatever I'm doing, a lot of the selling points of Hive are, well, we have very fast transaction time. We have feelish transactions. And now it sounds like we are going to have, because of have very flexible, I don't know what to call it, development options, as opposed to if you're going with a lot of the other blockchains out there, it's like, here it is, and you have to take everything and no a la carte here. It's you have yeah. everything or you build it all yourself. I'd say it's called deploy. I think of it as a deployment issue. So deployment of software. So in a smart contract system, it's basically if you run a smart contract uh, node, if you will, you're basically promising that I'll run any application that meets these requirements. So which means you're going to run it, everyone that gets published. You don't have control over it. Uh, and that's sometimes useful, right? That has some advantages. Uh, on the other hand, if you don't want to do that, half allows you to say, okay, I'm just going to run the ones that I want to run. And if you want to convince me to run yours, come talk to me and, and maybe I'll deploy your application. But it's a deployment issue as to whether the software gets automatically deployed to the server or whether the operator specifically says, I do or don't want to run this application. That's essentially the primary difference between smart, smart contract platforms and something like half, which is just a second layer, is that there's this difference in choice. And the, this difference in choice also comes with a, a couple other like side effects. Um, with the with this, not only does if you're running the smart contract platform, you, you say you're going to let anybody that meets those requirements run on your server, but that means you have to put some requirements on what you're allowed to run on your server too. Smart contracts limit some of the, have put limitations on how you can write an application uh, for safety reasons, because you don't want somebody to just be able to run any kind of software on your server because they could steal data from your server, just crash it, do whatever they want, basically, you know, take over your server and give it to them. So those are all issues that in order to avoid those issues, smart contracts run what's called a sandbox. It's basically a like a or a jail. It's like a special region of the computer that can't do it can't do other things. It's, it's prevented from doing a lot of things that might allow you to take over the server. So that's kind of a limitation you have to it's similar to like JavaScript. Uh, if you're familiar with JavaScript running on web pages, JavaScript runs and it, it runs on your computer, runs software on your computer, but it can't it can't just go randomly and grab files from your computer. Otherwise, you go to somebody's web page and they could start stealing files off your computer. Gotcha. So it's a way to partition it. Uh, you mentioned uh, uh, the keyword there a number of times, smart contract and. We did touch upon this a little bit last time, and uh, one of the uh, features of Hive is that there are no smart, smart contracts at the base layer. We, uh, it seems like the decision is uh, thus far to keep the base coding very tight, very focused, very limited, and so smart contracts are layer two. 
Mm -hmm. uh, get them off for security's sake, for efficiency's sake, for a, a few different reasons. And uh, there was a rumor floating out there, uh, and I think we discussed it, and it probably came from you, that you were thinking about doing a smart contract project or a smart contract layer. Uh, have you thought any more about that? Have you worked on that anymore? Has it been uh, put into action, or has it been bagged? Uh, any info Indirectly. there? Indirectly, it's been worked on. So basically, our plan was always to build it on top of half. Oh, okay. So so having half basically completed now, I mean, we're still making improvements, but half is really in a release state at this point. So we're pretty much ready to start building the smart contract platform on it next, which next in this case means after the hard fork, because we're going to be testing for you know the next month. And there's a few more things we want to do in Hive D too. So I th we'll be basically starting that up somewhere, I guess, late April, I suspect as far as the, the smart contract platform that gets built on top. But a lot of it is built already because of half, because remember how I mentioned the important thing about having a smart contract platform is that sandboxing, that protection mm -hmm. of the system. So by we're basically going to use SQL, which is what that's the language of a database that runs as our, as our smart contract language. And oh, that okay. means, and that means that we've already got the sandboxing because SQL Postgres servers already have sandboxing technology built in. So it's like we, you know, it's like you basically have to choose some kind of sandbox language when you write us when you make a smart contract language. So like you could choose JavaScript. That's a that's a common one that has been used a couple of times for for smart contract because it's a sandbox language. So we're kind of going a different route using SQL as our as our smart contract language. And there's that familiarity again. Exactly. Although, you know, admittedly, there's plenty of people familiar with JavaScript, too. <laughs> They're both. Well, yeah, but, but going back. But it's to better the, than, say, Solidity. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, going back, compare that to Solidity, which, you know, how many people out there really understand Solidity? Yeah. And, and are really willing to, to learn it. Um, moving on. Uh, and that's good. So, by the way, uh, I would presume, and I'll put a little bug in your ear, we'll probably see a post from the block trades account about that after the hard fork i would presume maybe yep, telling sure. what some of your plans are with it uh i know you're a supporter of this or i believe you're a supporter of this what are your thoughts on the hive back dollar um i think it's pretty crucial to the the platform because i mean hive is always going to be a speculative currency i, I think that's that's just not likely to change. Mm -hmm. So we need we need something that we need we need some kind of coin for commerce that's somewhat stable against base goods. It doesn't have to be the dollar, of course. It could be anything, but we need something. It could be the euro, or it could just be you know. I heard somebody suggest big back dollar, big backs <laughs> coin. So it's like a big Mac index, apparently. But anyways, <laughs> um, yeah, I think in some form or another, we need some. We need a coin that makes it easy because it's otherwise it's problematic, especially in any kind of long-term contracts. I mean, that's why we used hiveback dollars for the proposal system. I, mm -hmm. It came out of my experience working in BitShares, where we saw that you got paid in the cryptocurrency BitShares, which was very volatile in nature. So you'd, you'd hire a programmer to work at you know for you know hundred dollars an hour, and then suddenly you were paying a thousand dollars an hour, 
or you're paying him $10 an hour. <laughs> you know, it's not a happy way to get your work done. When you don't. <laughs> no, one side or the other is never happy in that transaction. They'd be yeah. either upset that they were overpaying him now, or they'd be, he'd be upset because he was he promising his work for, you know, not enough money. So you, you kind of need a stable currency to do for transactions. And I mean, if they're quick, you know, it doesn't matter so much. If your transactions are quick in nature, uh, you know, it doesn't really matter whether you pay in Hive or HBD, but any kind of longer term contract, you really need a stable currency. It's not going to, the value of it's not going to change too rapidly. Well, I mean, you just think about, I mean, the price of Hive dropped, uh, I think 10 or, or 11% in, in the last 24 hours. And it seemed like a lot of that move was, was at least for me, uh, for those of us in the East uh, of the U.S., it was overnight. And can you imagine being a merchant who sells uh, uh, products on your store and, you know, somebody buys it at nine o'clock at night and you don't check, but you wake up at 6 a.m. And, and basically the value of what they paid in dropped by 10 or 12 percent. Like that went my profit margin. Exactly. Yeah, it can be, especially if you're comp very competitive. So, yeah, it, it, you, if you want to have competitive markets, you need stable currency. Now, I find... I find the relationship and the correlation between HBD and Hive to be very unique. And also, I think it satisfies a lot of properties. And I understand, uh, getting back to the hard fork, one of the things that is going to take place, are, are we going to raise the haircut level? Yeah, we're raising it from 10 to 30%. Okay. Before we, we jump into what I was going to get to, maybe you should explain for those who are listening or watching who don't understand, what is the haircut level so that everybody's familiar what we're talking about? Okay. So the haircut level is a defensive mechanism built into the blockchain. And the reason it's there is uh, basically you're allowed to convert HP, Hive back dollars into Hive. And what we don't want is a situation where somebody could basically, if, if high fell very temporarily down in price a long ways, we could suddenly, somebody could just take their HBD that accumulated and generate a huge amount of hive, basically amount that would allow them to even say, take over the blockchain potentially. So there was needed to be some kind of limit on how far the conversion would go to prevent that kind of thing. And so the haircut limits that, and basically it says that it puts an upper limit on how much hive can be generated relative to the amount of hive that's already out there. And so in this case, it's 10%. So you can't generate more than 10% of the supply basically by converting HPD to hive. And so that's that's what the, if, if you convert it at all. So basically the, that's what that haircut does is it, it, sets a, it sets how much, how far hive can fall relative to HPD before you just won't be able to get, you won't be able to get that much H, that much hive for it. It, like it's it's an inflation control mechanism, and the reason it's done there is part is there's a fear there could be something called a death spiral, which is somebody takes their HBD, creates it to hive, then starts selling that hive off, which drives the price further down. Then they buy, then they convert more of their HBD at the lower price, and they could just generate more and more. It's, it, there's just various scenarios there that could be problematic if it got out of hand. Now the level was set at ten percent, which was really super super conservative. Um, I, beyond uh, it's, it's beyond anything really, but it was just, it was it, no, I guess at the time there wasn't any real strong need or desire to push HPD. It was a lot of people weren't really sure about its, you know, usefulness. And so I don't think, I think that's why the 10% got set that way. 
but I've never thought it was really reasonable at that level. And it's hard to say what is reasonable because it's this theoretical threat that makes any setting, any kind of haircut level. Um, but I think at 30%, I'm, I'm quite confident that's not at all risky. I, I don't see a scenario that could cause a real problem. Um, so if, but then of course you might say, well, why do you, what's wrong with 10%? Why not? Or even 1%? Why do we care about, why don't we, why do we have any risk? Why do we, why don't we just totally absolutely reduce our risk? And the problem is the haircut limit does put a risk to HBD itself. So it, it risks its stability. So if you start to approach the haircut limit is an HBD holder, you might be thinking, well, if, if we go over the haircut limit, my HBD is no longer worth a dollar. I can only get a lesser amount of hive. So it, it is a stability risk for the price of hive itself. So we don't really want the haircut limit to be exceeded because then HBD breaks its peg. And that's that is the ultimate risk for all HBD holders is essentially the haircut. So, yeah, and, and I would say that at risk, uh, and, and like you said, it was set super conservative, but maybe that made sense when there was a lot less hive out there and you, you're not dealing with the numbers you're dealing with now. Uh, and I think your risk is mitigated the more the, the blockchain grows in terms of the tokens that are out there, the value of everything, yep. the number of people holding it, where it's being held and things of that nature, that it just, as, as distribution takes place, the, the risk level will, will decrease, even though theoretically it's still there. Yeah. Because there's more buyers for hive, which means that somebody couldn't just dump, couldn't take HBD, convert it to hive and then dramatically drive down the price anymore because the market's more liquid. It's more accepting of hive. So yeah, there, that's absolutely true. That as 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 Hive is more desired, and there's more people buying and selling it, then the risk the the, the risk from HPD conversions definitely drops a lot. Well, and also from a governance standpoint, you know, uh, we we're we're all a little scarred and a, a little we're, we're more aware of what what could come from an outside threat. And from a governance perspective, the more Hive that is in more wallets and locked up in high power, while that reduces the liquidity on the, the open market, it does provide another layer of defense for the ecosystem because then we can't get uh, sock puppet witnesses and stuff like that because there's enough people holding high power that it's like, you know, you okay, go get yourself 20 million high Hive powered up still what are you going to do because there's 200 million powered up yep that's true definitely true now what what do you think are some of the limitations to hbd at this point where where are we still lacking obviously the peg is is it's better but it's still a little loose yeah i'm, I'm actually happy with the peg personally i know people are concerned but i think in the raising of a few percent that's really no different than plenty of sovereign currencies out there that have no problem doing trading. I mean, I, I, I deal in Canadian dollars and euros a lot, and I can tell you they vary against the dollar. <laughs> <laughs> Not very well lately either. So, by the dollar. Yeah, and Zlotties, uh, rupees. You know, <laughs> hey, you got it. You got yourself any Turkish lira right now? I do not. <laughs> Thankfully, so. But but I do pay people in those other currencies, uh, so you know, and it's not a problem. And, and those people are then happy to spend those currencies, and in, in you know, so it's it's the stability of of HPD. I think 
the like I said, I think the only threat to HPD's price really is the haircut. So we've kind of removed one of the last by increasing the the haircut up. I think we'll basically eliminate one of the larger risks to HPD that still exists. Um, so that I think will, and of course, will increase the supply too potentially. So well, I think that, that's going to stabilize. I think that will actually just in itself stabilize the price of HBD more. I think it'll tighten the peg because the risk is lowered. Um, I mean, right now, I mean, I wouldn't buy HBD if we were near their haircut right now, for instance. But, yeah. you know, we're twice over the haircut. I have, you know, I think it's a great buy. And if we're if we triple the haircut, then, you know. <laughs> that now we're, we're further away. It's, it just makes it more, it makes it more solid buy, easier to buy. I mean, you don't have to, you know, you're not risking as much. And so that's naturally going to increase the upper side of the peg, which is where I think we see the weakness right now. Right now we see usually HPD a little bit below a dollar. Mm. It's really, yeah. we don't really see it. I mean, it, 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 we can't go too far above a dollar because we have the instant conversion and the, with the collateral on the other side that just really pegs it hard at 1.05. Yeah, it, it does. And, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of people have complained about the conversion time and, you know, maybe that's something to look at down the road. But again, if, if you're trying to arbitrage HPD, you don't have to use the conversion mechanism to arbitrage it. You can Absolutely. use the internal exchange or, you know, if you're on a, an external exchange, you, you can use that. So, yeah, um, it works great. And there are plenty of people doing that. <laughs> Yeah, that, well, that's what HBD stabilizers doing is, is arbitrage. <laughs> all They're not long. the only ones. I've seen a number of actors out there doing this kind of trade. So, uh, it, it's it, I, I think the the weakness on the the weakness on the downside is, is really a little bit of the haircut, and I think with the haircut increasing, that we'll see a little bit of decrease there. And if we don't, I'll be arbitraging it some. So, <laughs> <laughs> what one of the things that I've I, and I've written a number of posts about this. In fact, I got another post in mind uh, on it because I, I, I'm with you. I think HBD not only is extremely important to Hype, I, I think it's a fabulous opportunity because uh, first off, we have the regulatory environment, which it, it's evident they're going after all the stable coins yeah. and they're going to make uh, them fall under whether it's Circle, whether it's Tether Foundation. They're going to have to be under the banking regulations. I don't think there's any way around that. Um, but HBD, you know, it's like, okay, good luck uh, bringing that one in because it's basically. Nobody's behind it. Nobody backing it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's basically just code on the blockchain and it's tied to another blockchain token. It's not a layer two. It, there's nobody behind it. Um but one of the things that I, I see is if if you're going to be a legitimate stablecoin and just look in at the number of USDC out there and, and Tether, and then you look at, you know, the float on uh, HBD, especially when you remove what's in the in the Dow right now, uh, we're going to need a hell of a lot more HBD. Uh, and yes, the conversion mechanism is is part of that, but. Converting all the hive over to HBD, while it may sound great in theory, and the, oh great, the price of hive will go up, less <laughs> hive, all that. People forget that you know what hive powered up is required to operate on this chain. So if we're talking about scaling, you need a lot of resource credits to 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 operate on chain. And right now it's not a problem because most of us who have any type of of hive power don't use nearly all of our resource credits and that the delegational help for applications and being delegated to them 
But Hive itself does have utility above and beyond the governance. It it actually has utility. It's in effect our gas. High power is effectively yes. our, our gas capability. So how do you look at HBD expanding tremendously without killing uh, the utility of the Hive token, i.e. the ability to operate on chain? My, my belief is we have a tremendous opportunity in the fixed income market. And since HBD is a base layer token, we actually can do a lot of things in the fixed income market that nobody else can because we're doing it at the base layer. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. So, I mean, I think, I mean, there's there's two pieces of this picture, right? There's utility, so make, driving demand for HBD. And I, I think that's the piece you're talking about really is finding ways to utilize HBD's value for services or, you know, mm -hmm. providing services. Right. And the second to increase the amount is that, of course, we've got a because it's because it's backed ultimately by Hive, Hive's price has to go up, too, in order for us to keep increasing the amount of HBDs out there. Otherwise, it becomes a risk factor. Right. That's why that mm -hmm. that's the whole point for the haircut. So now that can be a virtuous cycle. If we create more utility for HBD and more people want to you know, trade in and do things with it, then that can also drive up the price of Hive because people can say, well, Hive's back in HBD and you need Hive to do HBD transactions. So, but but there, there, ultimately, so to, to increase the supply of HBD, I think, yeah, utility is where you start. And I think as more people want to use HBDB, that's going to be a driver for increasing the price of Hive. And therefore you can create more HBD as a result and it, HBD can expand to meet demand. The supply yeah, of HBD. It, yeah, I've, I've been saying it's kind of the chicken or the egg, and you know where do you focus first? Because you need you, you need more demand, but without use cases, there's yeah. really not going to be the demand. You're kind use of, cases utility has to be first, in my opinion. Uh, I, I think I, you could, you know, you could I, create all the HBD in the world, but if nobody has a use for it, then where, where, what's it? Why? Yeah, and and there is that that point to it that you start driving demand, and then you can figure out ways for for creating more. Um, I think another use case, and, and because of the transparency, I think one of the biggest uh, opportunities for this entire uh, discussion in the financial arena is for collateral because pristine collateral is very limited and there's a lot of debt out there globally in our financial systems. And as we found out in the great financial crisis, what was used as collateral and thought of as high quality collateral and rated uh, by the rating agencies as high quality <laughs> collateral ended up being uh, garbage. And with the transparency, and I've thought about this blockchain uh, code is law. And with HBD, you actually have something that's based on the code. It's transparent. Anybody can read it. You know exactly where it is. And I could, I could see this being, and, and I wrote about this in terms of uh, the creation of high bonds, is an idea I had where you use the HBD in a locked environment, either in savings or some type of locked account, time-locked account, where then you spin off another token for liquidity, you, you can create a, a market for that, an exchange for that. And now you have a, 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 an asset of collateralization. 
And it's pristine collateral because you know exactly what it is paying and what it's worth because there's a market for it, a liquid market for it. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. I mean, so, I mean, there's two different forms of collateral, I guess, normally. I mean, so I guess the general collateral market is like, you know, collateral for some something that is providing mm -hmm. utility to you already that you still have, like a building or something like that. So, I mean, it, you, you can't replace the collateral for building with collateral for no. HPD because you, you need the building still. Um, but yeah, I think there are plenty of cases probably too, where you could at least show that you had assets that they're, you know, mm -hmm. locked up in some form and you probably could create some kind of, uh, you could certainly create some kind of contract theoretically that would allow it to pay out or something like that. So it's how to tie that to the thing is that's going to require something on the first layer normally, or you, you'd have to create something, uh, you'd have to create basically, um, a trustworthy second layer which is possible. It's one of the things I've been giving a lot of thoughts to lately is, is how to create trustworthy second layer uh, systems. And so, I mean, we're going to see a need for that eventually. So right now, I mean, it, so, I mean, the simplest way to, uh, this gets into a complicated issue and I'm guessing we don't have time for this. <laughs> how long do we have? Do whatever works for you. I mean, we, John okay. and I don't have much life, so we, <laughs> well, I didn't know if we had a quiet. So, and, and the, the USPs are quiet on your end, so I guess we can keep going on until kids or USPs start screaming. <laughs> okay, so, so let's let's this goes back to more blockchain theory, I guess, which seems to be the most of this this call is going to be. So, um, if you so there's gets to be an issue with second layer versus first layer. How do they interact with each other? So say I've got Hive. Um, the second layer sees everything that happens to Hive, but Hive doesn't see everything that happens on the second layer. So you could, for instance, you could, you could, you could have a system where you paid Hive to get the second layer token, for instance, and the second layer token system could see the Hive transaction where say it makes an, it makes a transaction from the buyer to the seller. And the seller, I mean, the seller is, say, the, the second layer system. And the second layer system can then credit them with second layer tokens or give them some second layer functionality, you know, authority, whatever. It can be anything. But that, so that's a transparent transaction to both sides. Both sides see that Hive got transferred to the second layer. But Hive doesn't see anything about what that second layer is now doing with it. So it doesn't see what it's done as a result. So, so what happens? So if the second layer wants to send that hive back to the first to somebody on the first, you know, send hive back to anyone or send hive somewhere, it has to sign those transactions with keys. And second layer systems on their own don't normally sign with keys. Mm -hmm. You have to have somebody. It has to be somebody who actually has a secret key. And if you share that secret key out to everybody in the world then it wouldn't be a secret key. So you get into this issue of how do you handle transactions on the first layer from a second layer system? And you can do it. So the first simple way is you can have an account on Hive and it's it's a centralized account that under that processes transactions, that sees transactions on the second layer and might say pay out Hive to somebody. So it's got a key, it's running on this guy's server and he's, he's every time he sees a second layer transaction goes on. So like you might be running an exchange for instance. And you could see stuff that happens. You could have a second layer decentralized trading exchange. And when you see that there's been a withdrawal of Hive, 
your your account could then your exchange account could then send Hive to that to that guy, right? I hope this is clear. Um, so, but what if you want to? I mean, the problem there is, is just one guy doing the signing, and if he goes away, then all those tokens don't mean anything on the second layer, right? Mm -hmm. uh, if you had Swap Hive or you know something like that, if the guy who's processing Swap Hive transactions goes away, you no longer can get Hive for them. So then, what you need to do is decentralize that that single point. So you can set up a multi-sig account that's basically multiple people can sign, maybe a majority or whatever. And you, so you can decentralize the same way we decentralize transaction processing on Hive itself. So, and then you, you could even have a second layer beyond that. You could have a voting system. You could make it a DPoS. So you could set up basically a DPoS on a second layer system where you vote with the tokens of the second layer system for who's who's has the signing authority to process those transactions that send stuff back to Hive. Yeah, so so you're just you're you're replicating the system. You're just doing it at the second layer, so not as to mess with the, the blockchain. Yeah, you've got itself. a governance. All you've got at the second layer is the governance system. That's not everything that's in Hive by a long shot. Yeah, uh, you don't have the peer-to-peer -peer system. Um, you don't have all the trans. You know, all the trans, the base layer transaction stuff. But yeah, you're basically the governance part of it. You can you can reproduce a DPoS governance model without probably too much difficulty at a, at a second layer. So that, that might be like one thing we might create as a, as a, as a half app is a, is a second layer DPoS like template that you could pick up and then you could just modify it and run your own DPoS system as a second layer and be able to have interactions with the base layer through that DPoS system. Gotcha. Well, I, I have some ideas in, in this realm and, you know, maybe we'll get and talk the, off the air. The reason I mentioned this is because just, sorry, just, just to get back. The reason I mentioned this is because some of the things you're talking about with being able to do these kind of first layer things, you can achieve this way, I think. So you could write second layer, you can write a second layer system, have all your logic on the second layer, and then you just build a DPoS communications signing layer to get transactions back to the base layer. So you could have a hive, you could have a HBD collateral system built on the second layer that then interacts with the first layer through this DPoS, second layer DPoS system. Well, I can throw the ideas at you and I'll leave the technical details to you because that's kind of out of my expertise. Uh, what about, uh, what do you know about the account signups and some of the onboarding and this people have been saying there's been a bit of an issue there. What, what are your views on that? Um, I think there have been problems and I think there probably still persist problems in the sign up. Uh, that's for sure. Um, as far as solving them, um, I've had various ideas. Um, I, I, I kind of, I mean, personally, I always favor to pay for, sign up system uh, rather than just giving out free accounts. Uh, I think it's difficult problem to there's, there's always people who are out there, bad actors who are trying to get accounts because hive accounts are valuable. And if you hand them out for free, it's a very difficult job to vet them to be sure that they're not scammers. So unfortunately, if you know this, it wouldn't be so bad if there's just one scammer per hundred users, you know, legitimate users, which is probably the real situation. But the problem is that one scammer can grab hundreds, thousands of accounts, <laughs> while the legitimate guys are only grabbing one each. So it's it's more of a problem. Just to, even a few bad actors can easily compromise a free account system, unless you've got some really good way to verify how you're handing out those free accounts. 
I'm not saying there's not such a system possible, but I don't know if I've seen a good one that we've employed right now. I, I think they're all the, all the ones we've got now have real problems. And I think that's one of the roots of the problems is the attempts to give out free accounts without a great validation system. Um, well, I mean, and, and you bring up a point that, uh, and I, I did write a post about this. Uh, what is the value of a Hive account? And, you know, a lot of people who are new may not see it, but when you think about it, where you have one login to, you know, all the different applications, you, if you are doing social media or business building, you all, you, your followers follow you no matter what the application, immutable posting, um, you know, your account is yours. It can't be taken away. All assets in your account are yours and can't be taken away. Provable too, right? So like you're getting back to the collateral, you can show somebody, look, I have this account and you can prove you control it. I have this money here. <laughs> you can literally prove that you have money to pay for something, for instance. Yeah. Yeah. So, which is how do you do that with no, no you have to bring cash to somebody? You just like, look, I've got all this cash here in my hands. <laughs> yeah. I got it hidden in my mattress. <laughs> Because I'm Canadian, right, John? John put all his Canadian dollars under his box spring here last week. I mean, you can't even just do something easy like, say, call my bank up and they'll tell you I've got $10,000 in there. The bank is not going to respond to that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it, that, that comes back to are we entering it with this, I'll throw out the umbrella, Web3. Are we entering this world where, I mean, you go to Web2, Facebook and, and Twitter and YouTube will, will give you all the, they'll all give you a free account, but there's strings with it. And, you know, there's conditions and they have a term of service. And they at the end of the day, you don't own that account. They own your account. Yeah. If they gave it to you, you don't own it. They own it. And not <laughs> yeah. only do they they're not giving you an account, but they're giving you ability to transact with their service that they can take away at any time and control it any way they want. Yeah. And they monetize it. They, yeah. they make money off of it. You don't. Yeah, absolutely. So it's that, a, it's that, a very different thing. That is a, a question. Is there going to be a new mindset developing that says, hey, by coming to Hive, okay, maybe I got to pay three bucks for an account. But, you know, instantly I have 20 or $25 worth of value even before I start doing anything. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's, 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 I think like an invite system is another thing we can look at. But, you know, basically, so in ways to invite your friends, right? Mm -hmm. So those, I think that's less subject to, you know, the kind of manipulation. Um, but again, I mean, how do you vet the guy for invites, right? Because you have to deal with that too. So say the, the original guy who gets the invites is a scammer. He invites fake people. Then he, do they get invites too? And <laughs> so any kind of system you make like that, you have to have some kind of, there still comes back to a vetting process with those kind of things. So um, yeah, I think, Paying payment system, I think, is, is not a bad way to do it. Uh, it's, it's it's certainly one of the simplest ones we can do now. Now, one of the things we probably could do right now is simplify paying right now, uh, especially right now. It's it we need more services where you can pay in fiat, basically, because if we're attracting new people who don't know anything about crypto, then they know how to make a credit card payment, but they don't necessarily know how to make an Ethereum payment or a Bitcoin payment or one of those kind of things. So I think that's an area where we, we could use some improvement. And I mean, I, there's been some stuff in that direction. I think maybe Roland, for instance, had a had a, a, a app uh, like on maybe the app, Apple Store. I forget that I think you could pay in euros. Uh, so you know, the, 
such services can exist, but I think we could use more of those. Yeah, well, if you use the theorem, then your hype account only costs you $203. <laughs> yeah, transaction fee of $17. $200 transaction <laughs> fee and $3. $3 account. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, that's why John loves Ethereum. <laughs> uh, just just to start wrapping up here, uh, if you want to uh, give us, uh, you already gave us some insight. Um, you, you have mid-April-ish hard fork and half going live at the same time. After that, you're going to switch your focus to some of these layer two, including smart contract, but uh, throw out some highlights. What uh, is going to be your focus for the rest of the year? Uh, definitely the smart contract is one of the biggest ones. Um, so we'll, we'll basically scope it out first. So figure out what we want to do at the first, uh, you know, first release, and then we'll build on. So we, we set, we'll set up a roadmap of how we'll release it. And because obviously we'd like to get something out there as fast as possible. But so it's a matter of deciding what's the minimum features we need in order to do a release. And, you know, what, so that's, that's, I can't, I don't, I don't have an estimate on the time yet because we need to do that yeah. step first in order to know just what it means to do a release. And then we can say how long it'll take. Um, the other thing I'm, I'm planning on starting uh, this year is the reputation system that I mentioned before. So we'll be starting on that. Now, I don't want to I don't want to confuse people here. And I think that there else is this confusion is the idea. This might be some replacement for the hive reputation system that is out there. I'm not saying it can't replace that and it might be used for that, but it, it, it goes a long ways beyond that. It's that's just kind of a thing that could be done in, in the side. It's really not a hive project per se. Uh, although, you know, because I work heavily with Hive, I don't doubt, you know, Hive will be, Hive users will be introduced to it and things like that. So, you know, we'll, we'll, mm -hmm. we'll probably make some Hive integrations, I guess you, you could say. But in general, it is just a peer-to-peer -peer system. Uh, so, but like one of the things it could be useful for, Hive could be useful for is coming back to the value of Hive accounts is you, you, when you want to develop, if you want to develop your reputation of a person, then you need some way to say, how do you know when that person's acting? when they're doing something. So a Hive account is a way of, you can do provable transactions with keys that say, this is this person doing this thing. So I, I, we, we've all, I've always planned to have the reputation system built in the ability to handle processing of blockchain, blockchain transactions and recognizing actions taken by people on a blockchain. So obviously we're gonna start with Hive for doing that just because we know all about Hive and it's really fast and it's got a lot of users and all those kind of things. So, by the way, I think that's another thing that sometimes bugs me. People think there's only like, I think people are underestimating the number of users on Hive occasionally. Uh, mainly because I think they look at these like daily activity counts mm. for how many people are on Hive. But I mean, not mm. everybody's going to interact on Hive every single day. So I feel that's undercounting quite a bit. Uh, I think the monthly and even, you know, bi-monthly is probably a more realistic count of people who are actually Hive users. Yeah. But in the realm of the internet, it's still a very oh, in the realm of internet, it's small. But you know, it still can be a factor of four. <laughs> well, and I think ultimately, you just look at how Hive has stood up. There is no doubt, whatever the number, it is a loyal and dedicated community. Oh, that's absolutely true. And I mean, we're still seeing growth too. So I, so one of the growth metrics I see is the is the hits on api.hive.blog and hive.blog itself. So I can see how we're, especially, actually, especially the council on Hive.blog are interesting because those are showing us like uh, 
you know more people viewers and things like that we've we've seen a steady increase over time it's that's that's been a well everybody everybody wants the moonshot and the rocket and hey how do we get five million people here tomorrow and (laughs) yeah it's slower process than that we we, basically it's we find more use cases that's that's the answer always yeah and and, you know if even if we had five million people interested we couldn't give out five million accounts i mean it's (laughs) you know unless they were paying three dollars a piece worth of ethereum um yeah so onboarding is definitely a, a problem that has to be solved along with it i mean right there's I, I mean, I think somewhat if there's a, if the demand is high enough, onboarding is not as much of a problem because people will fight harder through more obstacles to get their account. But at the same time, yeah, we also should make that barrier to entry easier, lower so that they don't have to be such a demand to get new people. That, that's so it's, it's we need to attack both problems. Yeah, we, we still have some infrastructure, and some some foundation pieces. Uh, final question. What are you most excited about with Hive? If if you had to put maybe pick maybe a couple of things, what what when you think about Hive in the future and what what we have brewing here, what really gets you excited? Hmm. <laughs> I don't know. That's a hard one because it's a lot of different things. I mean, usually it's it's related to my own personal projects, and that's partly because that's where I'm devoting my labor and because I'm passionate about them. So, mm-hmm. uh. I'm very interested in how Hive can link up to the reputation system because um, the reputation system is really one of the, the things I've wanted to do for a while. It has a lot of impacts. And so, but I think I think we do need a, an authorization kind of system in it to prove identity and things like that. And I, I think having Hive work as part of that and being a feeder for the reputation system, I think is 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 really important. Is, is that reputation system, would I be remiss with in, in calling it a uh, proof of person? That's one thing it can do. Uh, it can do lots of different things. It's very open-ended in terms of its applications. Uh, but certainly pr- proof of uh, identity, of, yeah, it's, it's definitely there. Just, and that can be different types of proof, too. You could have proof of uh, real world, you know, like this is the real person. But you could have another proof of identity is this is the guy who's known as this in the world. But doesn't mean that's, you know, John Doe. It just means that this guy that you've been speaking who's block trades, this is really block trades speaking right now, but who knows who block trades is? So you can have anonymous identities, you can have real world identities, you can have both in, in a system like this. But again, that just really just starts to scratch the surface of the things I'm planning for this system. Yeah, I, I've thought it, you know, one of the steps in the future that needs to be taken, it seems to me, um, we know that privacy has been obliterated online. And and as more stuff goes online, as we decentralize more data, um, transparency is a great thing in some regards, but it's not a great thing in other regards. You're, like you're absolutely right. You're, you're Well, lots of things like saying bad things about your boss. <laughs> Or saying bad things about your boss, uh, you know. Well, block, Web 3.0 is going to change it. We don't have bosses. We prepare ourselves well, and we make there, money well, by uploading it. There's always people you may have to do. They may not be your boss, but they may be somebody you have to do business with that you also have. Uh, you feel that you have other things you'd like to share about them unrelated to that business transaction. So there will always be a need for some amount of privacy in for information and. Uh, but still, you would be a nice to be able to share information, even in a private way. That's actually one of the bigger. It's that's actually one of the complicated subjects 
involved in designing the reputation system is how to deal with that exact problem. The problem between the need for anonymity of where the data is coming from, but verifiability of the data and ability to you know share that data while being anonymous or pseudo anonymous or you know some form. So those those are real real world design problems associated. With, I, they have there are solutions though. There are absolutely for sure solutions to that. Well, what what I was going to is you know we we I think we need some type of digital ID system, but that has those components in there because there's certain things that yes, having it very public and transparent is great, but there's other thing like medical records that are totally private. Uh, and only share with certain people and, you know, other things. And yeah, I guess it is complex. So we'll give you six weeks instead of four to complete. Your <laughs> you but yeah, you're, you're, you're entirely correct. Uh, a lot of this is, a lot of this will revolve about how you decide what to share with whom. Uh, there's a lot of that going on in this system is you're not going to share all your information with everybody. You're going to share it with your friends uh, and not even every everything with every friend, right? It's it's going to be more selective than that. And then sometimes you might want to share stuff in a way that makes it more anonymous, so you can have aggregation of data, so that somebody can see that there's a result coming out of the system, but they don't know who where the inputs came from. But there's a guy that you trust who's aggregating that data, so he's basically stamping his he's he's saying I'm not lying. This is the data I'm getting. So he he now has a reputation associated with aggregating data privately but honestly, mm -hmm. and then somebody could, you know, those things can be challenged too. So it's, 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 a, it's, it is a complicated system. It, it's, there's a lot of, I mean, you can make a very simple one that's very transparent. Everybody sees everything and, you know, you could start with that, but very rapidly, a lot of the most important data that you might want to share is sensitive to the source. Yeah. So it, it sounds like uh, you have some big plans and some big projects on, on your plate. Uh, John, anything from the peanut gallery on any of the... Uh... It, it, it's pretty funny uh, when when you guys were talking about that and Block Trades is like, you know, like, who, who is this guy? That was actually a question in my telegram. They're like, he's like a secret witness, huh? He never shows his camera. I'm like, trust me, <laughs> it does exist. He's a real no. person. See, we, we have to explain he has a full head of hair and our new policy is if you have a full right. head of hair not allowed on no, no. <laughs> you're just audio only don't make us look any worse than we are yeah, I, I, I had to make it clear for a long time <laughs> a real person real person it does exist so yeah yeah you can and, you can find video out there of me i guess i think if he searches around they'll pop up i'm not i don't do a lot of video but it does pop up every once in a while <laughs> yeah yeah anything no, anything you want to add that uh you want to let people know that you're thinking about or working on or uh tidbits about hive or or anything like that well i think we covered the main things i mean hard fork 26 coming out uh april uh after that, we begin work on reputation system and on the uh, smart contract system. Um, other than that, we've got more performance tweaks along the way. Still got the secret one, which I haven't talked about. Uh, that's actually the big delay right now, and I think we'll probably be starting on that, I want to say, hopefully next week. Uh, and that's probably going to take us two or three weeks. And that's essentially a performance improvement, but it requires a protocol change. So that's why it's got to be part of the hard fork unfortunately um so and 
other than that, I think that's about it right now. Um, we've, I guess I'll mention we've added some more programmers. We've, so we've got more guys working on Hive nowadays than we added to not too long ago. And we're adding more to our general staff and trying to get everybody, even the guys who aren't directly working with Hive, we're starting to introduce them more into the Hive environment just so that they're Hive capable, I guess. So that's about it. Do, do you see this blockchain being a, a major force in the future? Uh, yeah, I honestly, I want to use Hive and the reputation system to change the world entirely. Oh, okay. <laughs> we, hey, we like you, those people with small goals. You have to have aspirational goals, and that's mine. <laughs> uh, well, that's a great thing about the digital world. You can target an audience of like 5.25 billion people. Yeah, yeah, it's it is it's truly a, a different world we live in now. That's for sure. It, the chances for change are are much higher than they were in the past. Well, we we thank you for your time and coming on, and and you're always welcome here. Anytime you have any tidbits or insight you want to let everybody know about and, and drop, I I think John, what are we now? We got about ninety five million viewers. We dropped a couple <laughs> weeks ago, and I think Joe Rogan passed us again on Spotify. But yeah. That that happens. Yeah, we're, we're, we we have goals too, right? <laughs> we're, we're going after Joe. Although we're, we yeah, Joe. Nice. He's, yeah. he's got hair like we do, John. So we got <laughs> we got don't bash the ball, guys. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, it was it was great, man. Appreciate you coming by, and um, thanks for all the work you do. You know, we're we're grateful for it, and especially when you uh when you just left us with that gem where i want to change the world with this that's kind of like you know you hear that from you it's like ah, we're in a good spot here guys go out and buy some hive not financial advice but go buy some hive not a bad idea it's on sale right now mm. well guys sure. thank, thanks for having me on the show I enjoyed it for sure thank you take care Thanks for listening to the Cryptomaniacs podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show and look forward to hanging out with you again next week.